Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Five minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock here on the 12th day of October. We're not going to talk about it. But uh, news into the KFAX studio that Steve Scalise has dropped out of the House Speaker race. Wow. The disunity and disorganization on Capitol Hill continues. And uh, clearly at this point, no path forward. I don't think the congressman from Florida had any idea the amount of turmoil that he would be creating. But um, here we are nevertheless. But on to uh, things closer to home. It was an interesting weekend. Uh, A weekend filled with, uh, of course, much horrific tragedy as more details continue to pour out of Israel uh, regarding the horrific early morning attack on unsuspecting families and residents in uh, Gaza. Along with that closer to home, it was a weekend chosen by Governor Gavin Newsom to sign some bad bills and veto some others. I have to believe that largely these actions, when there is either the release of an important press uh, detail or, in this case, the signing of bills, some good, some bad, that um, it's done on purpose over the weekend. We're not paying attention. Those of you that were watching the news undoubtedly were watching what was unfolding in Israel. But nevertheless, here we are, the governor making final decisions on a list of bills, some of which um, in the veto department are very encouraging. So let's get down to cases as we're joined now by Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council. And Jonathan, it's always great to have you with us today. I I actually have to tell you that uh, I I was greatly encouraged by at least a handful of the vetoes, thinking, well, not knowing what the pure motivation may be, but at least there was one sane individual, even if it's for just a short period of time, um, that saw through a whole variety of some really bad legislation passed by our so-called representatives in the Capitol. So uh, let's break it all down, just kind of go through the list. The one, of course, that was a big shocker that even made its way through committee um, was a proposal by Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco, who we thoroughly at this point disavow, <laughs> and um, the passage of Senate Bill 58 legalizing psychedelic, um, I guess, mushrooms in this case, is essentially sort of the, uh, uh, the, the natural form of LSD. Uh, we are pleased to announce that the governor actually vetoed this bill. Yeah, Craig. And first off, it's it's great to be with you, as always. All of us at California Family Council really appreciate you and your show bringing attention to these issues. Uh, SB 58, that was the bill that would have legalized those magic mushrooms, so-called, the psilocybin and the essentially the psychedelic hallucinogens. And, yeah, we, we raised some very serious concerns about this all throughout the process. And... Again, you, you do have to say, I guess, whether it's, you know, a stop clock is right twice a day or uh, maybe it's just that level of common grace that God mercifully gives to all of his creation. Uh, but, yeah, Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom did veto this. And 
I, I think this is maybe the best one of his vetoes. For a lot of the other ones, there were um, there were kind of hedges or there were comments made in his veto message that kind of undermined the the goodness of the veto. But in this case, he really did, I think, protect Californians and protect our communities from some of the worst ideas and the worst excesses of the legislature. Um, just to clarify, I realize that there are some cases where there are people that suffer from different conditions, whether it's PTSD or whether it is chronic pain or different things like that, that some of the drugs that they take in the hospital, I mean, even even things like morphine or other opioids, sometimes those can have addictive qualities. They can have very bad side effects. But we allow those types of drugs to be used under very strict regulations because we realize that it can sometimes be compassionate to authorize them for patients, whether it is uh, soldiers who are returning from war or it's people that are suffering from cancer and chemotherapy and all the serious side effects. But we realize that under very strict guidelines, there might be a good reason to use those drugs. Sadly, though, this bill from Senator Weiner, it would not have had any of these safeguards. It essentially would have allowed for personal possession and personal off-the-record use of these so-called magic mushrooms. And I think justifiably, that is why Governor Newsom looked and said, this is a step too far, even for California. This well, let's, let's call it what it is. It, it's, it's unsupervised, uncontrolled, recreational hallucinogen use. And boy, you know, if it isn't enough that we're concerned about people getting uh, into the bar and then getting into the car, uh, now in a growing number of communities across California, most recently here uh, in the East Bay in Union City, uh, legalizing not one, not two, but three recreational marijuana stores, not for the purposes of relieving people that are dealing with glaucoma, suffering from cancer, things of this sort, but rather, rather purely for recreational reasons. Now we're going to have somebody get behind the wheel who is uh, hallucinating on mushrooms and is seeing monsters coming at them or who knows what else? I mean, wow. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think you're, you're totally correct. It's the same type of problem as we see with marijuana in the sense that there is no good test. There's not a breathalyzer or a sobriety test that can be easily done by law enforcement officers for these types of drugs. It, it's not something where we can say, oh, you, uh, you blew a .08, and that means that you are clearly intoxicated, we're gonna take you in. A lot of these drugs, there's no clear method for determining just how intoxicated someone actually is. And th the real danger is, Craig, as you said, beyond the fact that there's no way of, of knowing the exact percentage of how, uh, how much someone has used. There's really actually a spiritual component to this. And this is something that I think was obviously it was not mentioned in the governor's letter, but one of our good other organizations, Family Research Council, uh, Dr. Jennifer Bowens wrote a key observation about this because sadly, this is not something just done by Senator Scott Weiner. Uh, we've seen a bill introduced in the United States Congress by trying to legalize these hallucinogens. 
And our friend Dr. Ballins pointed out that if you go back and look in Scripture, when it talks about sorcery and witchcraft in the New Testament, the word that is actually used for that is the word, the Greek word, pharmakeia. And that's where we get our word for pharmacy or pharmaceutical. And the point that she makes is that very often, as part of the witchcraft rituals back in the first century, they would actually take these very types of hallucinogens as a way to open up their minds or to open up their souls to uh, supernatural influences that were not, not the Holy Spirit, shall we say. So I think that's something that as Christians, we really have to look at this and realize that beyond just the, the physical health effects, there actually is a spiritual component to drugs like this that we should absolutely be opposing. We should absolutely be warning our fellow citizens about that nobody would, I, I don't think we would say that it, the idea of uh, uh, using Ouija boards or uh, seances as a method of treating PTSD or uh, other types of chronic pain, no one would say that is a good idea. But in a very real sense, Craig, I think there is there, that level of spiritual deception that could happen if we wholesale legalize these types of hallucinogens and very, very dangerous drugs. Well, indeed so. And, you know, you, when you look at the broader picture of the out of control drug problem that America has. I mean, let's face it, I, I, earlier today was reading about uh, tragic things happening in uh, South America related to the violence tied into drug cartels. And then, of course, we all know the stories of what's happening across the border in Mexico. And we see people even fleeing from Mexico coming north into the United States. Now, some politicians have said, oh, they're sending them. No, they're not sending them. And a lot of these people are escaping because of the out-of-control violence related to the drug cartels. And guess what? Every one of those cartels are in business because of Americans who just can't break the habit of their use of illicit drugs. And we are creating a monster here. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, well, we need to arrest drug dealers. We need to address those that cultivate and and um, manufacture or otherwise uh, produce and, and sell these drugs. But guess what? None of them would be in business. We could put them out of business tomorrow if America would figure out why it needs to be anesthetized so much through the use of illicit drugs. And it runs the gambit from marijuana to cocaine to meth to hash, even magic mushrooms or, or hallucinogenic mushrooms. Smart, at least, that the governor vetoed this. Tragic that there are members of our legislature in Sacramento that thought it was a good idea in the first place. All right, we've got a lot more to run through, so we're going to just uh, take a quick time out, and when we come back, let Jonathan just rip right through this whole list and give us some insights as to the good bills uh, that, on a positive sense, uh, were vetoed by the governor. Now, they weren't good bills. It was good that the bills got vetoed, put it that way, and then also, sadly, a few that get signed into law. We'll get to all of that and more as our conversation with Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council, continues in just a moment. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation with Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council. Uh, Jonathan, let's move through this list. Um, There was a a couple of other uh, encouraging vetoes that were related to abortion here in California. Tell us about those. Yeah, absolutely. There was there was one key bill that Governor Newsom vetoed that was surprisingly good uh, that dealt with the issue of uh, essentially requiring that health insurance companies did a would offer a, the abortion pill late into pregnancy. Right now, the situation is that the abortion pill cannot be prescribed beyond. And shockingly, you had a legislator who was trying to get the abortion pill to be able to be given to women far beyond that, which is beyond even what the Food and Drug Administration allows. And fortunately, Gavin Newsom did veto that bill. Another one that uh, (laughs) relates to insurance, and boy, talk about trying to get a stranglehold, a corner on the market, so to speak, of abortion here in California. Uh, This one, particularly in terms of interstate commerce, uh, was a fascinating one. Uh, Tell me about his veto of AB 1432. Yeah, so this is something that, again, is interesting to see. It's It's not something that you normally expect Gavin Newsom to be a pro-life governor by any means. But I think he even realized from the interstate commerce level that the legislature could not bind the the plans and abilities of other states who were going to be providing insurance in the state of California. Essentially, this would have required that every plan coming in from out of state would be required to cover certain forms of insurance. And again, I I don't think he vetoed this because he suddenly has had a come to Jesus moment and is recognizing the value of life in the womb. But just practically speaking, he knew this was going to be open to serious constitutional challenges. Continuing down the list, and this is another one, you know, it it never ceases to amaze me the areas in which government finds that it's necessary to uh, to interject itself. Uh, one of the measures that he vetoed was Senate Bill 541 that would require schools to provide teenagers free condoms. I mean, really, we we go from educating them to instruction manuals, and and you know, why don't we also start to give out uh, I don't know vouchers to go get a hotel room? Yeah, you know, that's absolutely. That I mean, again, I, I hate to be so crass about this, and I apologize that there's parents in the car with the kids, but I, I think that realistically, already in the state of California, Planned Parenthood gives out uh, millions and millions of free condoms every single year, and there are multiple other health agencies and groups that give them out. But the idea that the legislature thinks the thing that will solve the incredible issues we have with promiscuity and teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases and everything, rather than teaching uh, young people to be responsible, rather than teaching them that God created them and their bodies for something greater than just uh, promiscuity, uh, the, the idea that we would just try to say condoms, free condoms, the problem is we don't have enough. We've got to even give those out in classrooms. I'm grateful at least that Gavin Newsom is 
is recognizing that that's not something we should focus on. Sadly, though, moving forward to the bills that he did sign, there were a number of things that he did not have that aha moment. One of them, AB 665, that I guess is nothing short of, what do we call it, state-sanctioned kidnapping? I mean, a measure that would allow a child to grant his or her own consent, and emphasis on the world child, about being placed in a residential shelter. And once again, no parental consent. Consent or notification is required. I mean, what does the state think that it is? Well, Craig, I think this is probably the single worst bill that Gavin Newsom has signed, not only this year, but maybe throughout his entire governorship. And I, I, I'm not exaggerating here, because essentially, as you said, this bill more or less gives an ability for any 12-year-old minor to basically choose to emancipate themselves for the purposes of mental health treatment and other sorts of care. And I think that parents really need to understand that this is vitally important. If your child is 12 years old or older, under AB 665, this would allow that child to self-declare that they want to check themselves into a residential treatment facility, think some sort of a group home or something else like that. And in previous years, in order for a child to do that, in order for them to be able to make this very grave decision about their own mental health, about their own physical health, in the absence of their parents, they would have to allege to a court or to a child protective services worker, well, I have to be able to do this on my own because my parents are abusive. They're either physically abusive, sexually abusive, mentally or emotionally abusive. And then the parents would be investigated. And while that process was going on, the child would be able to be placed into the care of the state for at least a brief period. But under AB 665, not only does the child not have to prove that their parents are abusive, they no longer even have to allege that their parents are abusive. And tragically, Craig, I mean, you, you could understand that if there is a, uh, I don't know of any other way to put it, a groomer, a, a teacher or an older adult, whether it's at school or someone they met online, if that older adult says, hey, you need to accuse your parents of abuse, I think a lot of children, even as young as 12, are going to have reservations about that. They're going to say, I, I don't want to get my parents in trouble. I don't want them to get arrested. And they're going to not, not feel comfortable going down that route. But if they say instead, oh, don't worry, you don't have to get your parents in trouble. We just want to make sure you, 12-year-old, girl, 12-year-old boy who's struggling with gender dysphoria, we just want to make sure you get the help that you need. Well, now that opens up Pandora's box. And uh, Craig, think about this. Every 12-year-old that you've ever known, and you yourself when you were 12, did you think about all of the long-term consequences of your actions? as a 12-year-old. Well, that's what we're asking every 12-year-old child in the state of California to do, to decide grave and serious consequences over what could happen to them for the rest of their lives if they choose to begin this process of joining a, a residential treatment facility as young as age 12. 
I shudder. I absolutely shudder at it. Uh, one final one that I want to touch on before our time winds down, Jonathan. Uh, AB 230, I mean, seriously? I mean, we're, we're, we're going from providing, a, a, you know, abortion pills to providing condoms to now providing tampons. And you might say, well, you know, uh, a young lady might need a little uh, emergency help. Okay, I get that. This is not for the young girl's bathroom. This is placing tampons in the third grade boys' bathroom. Did I say boys? Yeah, let me say it again. Third grade boys' bathroom. What? Yes, that is absolutely correct. And Craig... uh our staff member, uh, Sophia Lori, who testified against this bill every step along the way, she pointed out something that I think is really deceptive about the way this is being sold. Uh, they are trying to say it would go into the third grade boys' bathroom. Uh, originally, they said it would go to the sixth grade boys' bathroom. But the reality is, Craig, if, if you have ever been inside an elementary school, there is not a separate bathroom for the third grade boys. There are usually bathrooms for the first to sixth grade children, uh, first to sixth grade boys. And so in reality, just practically speaking, this would likely mean even though the mandate is only down to third grade, because schools are not going to have the, the ability to segregate the grades out by third grade, it's possible that this these tampons are going to be placed in the bathrooms used by the first and second grade boys. And uh, Craig, again, I, I hate to be so frank about this, but I, I do not know how many young boys at, age, at uh, grades one and two, or even grades three through six, really fully understand all of the biology and the issues uh, related to uh, what girls go through during puberty. And the fact that you are now placing these in the boys' bathrooms and saying, we are putting these here because who knows, maybe you're a girl, maybe you will need these products. I I mean, the the level of gender confusion and deception that you're introducing into these very young children's minds is just despicable. It is. And, you know, indicative of the fact that we need a complete change of leadership in Sacramento. Maybe I need to rephrase that. We need leadership in Sacramento because this group up there right now. Wow, wow, wow. Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council. We kind of rushed through this list because uh, time's a wasting, as they say. But you can get complete details online about this and other issues that the California Family Council is uh, fighting for on our behalf by going to California Family. Family.org. That's CaliforniaFamily.org. 532 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, in our discussion with Jonathan Keller, and as we have outlined for you in this program for 30-something years, uh, there is clearly a bent in the state of California. Not that it's an opinion shared by most Californians, but it certainly seems to be an opinion shared by most people that are in the California state legislature, that this is to be a state that is very liberal with abortion at any time, under any set of circumstances, for anyone, at any reason, up to and including even having Californians pay for abortions for people that are not even residents of our state. And to show you the disconnect here, it's it's almost, 
that that aspect of being quote unquote pro abortion pro choice as they would call it it's almost cult like i mean it, it's almost a religion for them and oftentimes they will make statements that defy logic defy science defy reality and do it with an absolute straight face and expect you to buy it hook line and sinker Let's get to a conversation with Valerie Hill, CEO of Real Options. Valerie, always a delight to have you join us. I don't want to put you on the spot here at the start of our conversation, and I realize that there are um, probably and rightfully so restrictions on what, if anything, uh, you could even say about the situation. But um, we have taken a tragic notice of the action by Attorney General Rob Bonta's office. Um, Are you in a position to make any comment about that? Well, thanks for asking, Craig, and thanks for having me on tonight. It's always a blessing to be on with you. Even if I throw Um, you a curveball right at the uh, onset. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I for sure want to get to our nightlife event, but I I can say a couple of things to you. You know, it really is very telling when you sued via email from a reporter or the phone starts ringing and we had all of that with reporters asking for comments and we didn't know anything about this lawsuit because it was such a political show of a press conference. But that's exactly how we first knew that the California Attorney General Rob Bonta had sued both Heartbeat International and Real Options for providing abortion pill reversal, which is what we do, and promoting it through their Rescue Network hotline, which is what Heartbeat does. And really the intent of his lawsuit against us seems to be to censor life-saving information from women, which doesn't align with choice at all, regarding abortion pill reversal. And despite compelling evidence of the safety of progesterone and its effectiveness in countering uh, the abortion drug mifepristone, which is the first medication in a chemical abortion. But I will just say that, as you know, Real Options provides compassionate, comprehensive, high-quality, holistic reproductive health care, education, and reproductive loss healing to women, men, students, and families, and that is our our calling from God. So we completely disagree with the allegations in the lawsuit, allegations that the Attorney General never gave us an opportunity to address before filing his action and holding the press conference that he held. But we do look forward to addressing and refuting them in court. Yeah, this is clearly a dog and pony show. And I'll make one final comment, then we'll move on. Um, I found it very telling in reading the press release that was sent out by the attorney general's press office, um, doing a little bit of how should we say Tarzan like chest pounding and then Uh going on to say that, well, if you really want to get the real story and get uh, and, 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 quote, urging any Californian seeking information, quote, related to reproductive care to visit our reproductive rights website. And a quick glance at the reproductive rights website walks you through your right to birth control, your right to medication, your right to access to abortion, your right to other health services. Not a word about 
your right to the truth or your right to all options, your right to abortion, your right to carry the child to term. None of that is mentioned. So it's clear to show which side of the equation the attorney general's office is on. Absolutely. And I will want to say on top of that, that women have a right to change their mind and they have a safe option if they change their mind. Yet, you know, what he's basically saying is they don't have a right to change their mind and they shouldn't have this this choice. And we would like to say that no woman, no mother should be forced to complete an abortion that she no longer complies with. Yeah. It, that's what he's trying to say. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it, it is politicizing uh, not only a woman's health, but a woman's right yeah. to make up her own mind, and it, it's Absolutely. tragic. Uh, yeah. Let's move on to uh, more important or, or uh, certainly more positive things. You've got a benefit coming up um, in a few weeks, do. the annual yeah. Ignite Life Benefit. Tell us more. Well, it's going to be a great evening. We're going to be celebrating 42 years of advancing a culture of life in the Bay Area and all that God is doing in and through our medical clinics, our education program, and our reproductive loss healing. It's going to be an evening full of hope and inspiration, which is definitely something we could all use these days. Uh, There's two ways people can attend in person or virtually. We are creating a virtual event video for those that live too far afield in the Bay Area um, or just can't make it that evening. So if you would like to attend with us in person, you can join us at Calvary Chapel in San Jose, Saturday, November 4th. The doors open at 5 and we're going to be serving dinner right away. We will also have our outreach exhibits from 5 to 6.45 so people can go to exhibits, and come have dinner or have their dinner, go look at exhibits. And then um, at 7 p.m. in the sanctuary, we will have the main program and presentations on outcomes from this past year, goals for next year. And our special guest speaker is going to be Dr. Abby Johnson, former director of a large Planned Parenthood in Bryan, Texas, many years of the book Unplanned. And she's now CEO of it, of, and then there were none. So Abby's doing some amazing and worthy work of her own, but she's also uh, got a great story to tell and great, um, you know, personal testimony. She does indeed. And let me just toss my own endorsement here. Abby has been a guest on the program a number of times uh, down through uh, the recent years. And uh, she is has definitely has a compelling story and shares it in a very compelling way. So it's going to be a great evening. She does. And I'm so excited. We're so blessed to have her. We're just really ready with, um, you know, supporters of five clinics. This is going to be a treat for all of us. And there's no cost to attend, by the way, uh, thanks to our generous underwriters and sponsors. So people can come and enjoy this this whole wonderful evening of hope and inspiration. And be, being a part of the live event, of course, to me is the most exciting. And Abby's coming to do a meet and greet at 5 p.m. Um, that has That's invitation only, so if you register as a champion, and you bring two guests, you sign two guests up with you in your online registration, then you all three or more can come into the meet and greet and meet Abby before dinner. 
uh, or before the event. Well, and you just anticipated my question because I thought, gee, uh, a lot of folks in the Bay Area that uh, have maybe either uh, heard about Abby or are familiar uh-huh. with her through my program might say, gee, I'd love to come. And I got some, some neighbors that are also pro-life people that like to get involved and make a difference. So folks are indeed who are hearing our conversation welcome to invite guests. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you can't come that evening, or if you'd rather have a watch party at home, and you just, like I said, it's South San Jose might be a little far for some of our San Mateo or Oakland supporters, but you can uh, register online for the virtual event. You'll go live with us on YouTube at 5 p.m. November 4th. And if you can't do that evening, you will have the link, and any time after it premieres, you'll be able to watch it at your convenience. So we want you to get the message. We want you to get to hear Abby. She's going to be only 20 minutes of the virtual, and she'll be about 40 or 45 of the live, plus the VIP meet and greet. So great opportunities for our church family in the Bay Area, neighbors and friends, to get involved and participate. Okay, here's the, here's the big magic question. We have listeners on the edge of their seats, and that's not easy to drive like that. <laughs> for folks to get more information and to register, where do they need to go? They need to go to friendsofrealoptions.net, and right on the homepage, there's a big, beautiful graphic with Abby's picture in it. And you can hit the blue button to register in person or hit the other one to register virtual. Or you can scroll down if you want to get your church involved, you want to get bulletin inserts, all the resources that we have, digital slides, posters, everything for you to promote this in your church and share with your friends. You just hit the resources tab down below those registration buttons. It's all on the homepage. Um, If you want you would like to usher, you'd like to help us, parking attendance, registration, social media, set up, tear down. There's lots of ways you can serve and be a part of the evening with us. Fantastic. And still hear the message. Great. And that's going to be on Saturday, November the 4th at Calvary Chapel in San Jose. And to get details about uh, making reservations for you and some uh, friends or family members and uh, invite people with checkbooks, too, would you? <laughs> you can check it out online. Friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. An opportunity to not only learn what God has done through Real Options over the last 12 months, but also a vision for the year ahead in ways in which you can get involved and to make a significant Real difference through real options. Friendsofrealoptions.net. That's the place to go to check out, get more information, and to register and save your seats. Friendsofrealoptions.net. Our thanks to Valerie Hill, CEO of Real Options, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You can be assured that at some point, when Congress gets away from their other financial distractions, they will return once again to the topic of gun control. They did as they did so following the Sandy Took events. Joining me now with some insights, we're joined by Bill Frady. Bill is host of the nationally syndicated program called Lock and Load, presented by Gun Owners of America. Bill, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Um, I, I guess only the distraction of other things going on in Washington, D.C., um, has temporarily rarely the the delay the parade of once again renewed demands to uh, truncate the second amendment rights yeah yeah right now they've got bigger fish to fry uh, it, it's really you know in the united states uh since sandy hook 
there's been five studies and surveys taken. Uh, two of them, or actually three of them are quite notable because one was Harvard, one was the CDC, and one that was the Justice Department. And what the CDC found out is uh, John Lott's numbers and Gary Kleck's numbers and all of all the numbers that we hear about two and a half million, three million gun users per year in defense are true. And that law-abiding gun owners are very good people. They don't break the law. They, they, they don't snap because they're carrying the evil gun. Uh, police, uh, the, we had the police one survey where they did 15,000 police officers across the country. And uh, the lowest percentage uh, police that we're talking about they preferred having Americans armed with guns was in the 80 percentile uh, they don't believe more gun control is going to stop crime or do anything uh, then of course we had uh, the Pew Research Center and uh, I think I've named them all now crime is down 49 percent gun violence violent crime across the board is down half of what it was 20 years ago it, it's a non-problem and but that's not why they're pursuing gun control. So that's why they continue to pursue gun control. It has nothing to do with personal safety or uh, preventing crime because gun control doesn't prevent crime. It it uh, motivates crime. Well, and you know the the absolute irony in almost without failure every one of these cases from the White House. I'm sorry, from the uh, wire story that I'm reading right here um, that suggests that the uh, potential woman in this uh, event there on Capitol Hill today, 34 year old Miriam Carey, um, a dental hygienist from Connecticut, who quote was described by sources as having a history of mental illness. Close quote. Certainly, in the case of uh, the naval shipyard shooter, a history of mental illness. There seems to be a common thread in almost every one of these cases. As eager as Congress is to try to move in and outlaw guns, how come nobody's attempting to try and outlaw mental illness? Well, that's because they would have to treat it differently. Um, uh, Dr. Keith Ablo was a psychiatrist that writes for Fox News, and he, he was talking about Aaron Alexis, and Aaron Alexis could have been redeemed. Most of these people could be redeemed, but what happens is they go to a they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they get some over-the-counter, well, over-oral medication like Paxil or Ritalin or Zoloft or one of those psychotropic compounds. And that really doesn't address their issue. The ones that are deeply, I mean, Aaron Alexis, he did everything but uh, write out a letter, big block letter. Somebody needs to help me. He went to the police. He went to the VA. He had, shoot, he had two shooting incidents prior to uh, getting cleared to work at the naval shipyard, um, and and still, nobody did anything. And, I, and ironically, nobody looking at any of the psychiatrists involved in this and saying, gee, we need to do an investigation into potential malpractice here because of the failure of the mental health professionals to aggressively respond or react to the obvious cry for help. Uh, you know, I don't know if the, these guys fall under the, uh, the heading of medical misadventure, but... Um, if you want to go after the two biggest killers in the United States, or two, I think the average is two and a half million people die unnaturally per year. And the biggest killers are alcohol and tobacco and then medical misadventure, which kills about 200,000 people a year. And I don't know if these, these poor people that uh, fall through the cracks of the mental health system could be listed under medical misadventure, but they, uh, they certainly need to, they need to take a very serious look at 
the way they're treating these people. One of the states that, that ironically has um, they come across fairly unscathed in terms of this kind of widespread bloodshed in uh, in recent years, and yet has taken some of the hardest line against gun control is uh, the state of California. Um, yeah. There's now an attempt to try, and, and, and I guess at the end of the day, you'll have to help us understand this, Bill. Uh, it, it seems as if it's now gotten down to an attempt to try and outlaw hunting rifles. Well, what they want to do is they want to outlaw all semi-automatic rifles that have a detachable box magazine, which abandons all pretense beyond the assault weapon ban. Now, you've got to understand, first of all, assault weapon, the term assault weapon is a term that was coined by the uh, Violence Policy Center, which is a rabid anti-gun group. And they termed that back in 1988 as, as a way to uh, cause an emotional reaction to the description, assault weapon. Uh, not a target pistol, not a sporting rifle. Uh, the, the same rifles, by the way, are referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as personal defense weapons. But um, in the hands of, of a civilian, it becomes a, a, an assault weapon. And uh, now they've abandoned all pretense, and they're going just about everything that launches a bullet. Well, the Remington that was used in the naval shipyard shootings, uh, what I understand to be a simple pump-action shotgun, does that suddenly come under the category of an assault weapon? Uh, well, they <laughs> one state had a buyback not too, since the D.C. shooting, and uh, one of the buybacks somebody bought uh, turned in a pump shotgun with an extendable stock, and that was the that they uh, claimed they had collected an assault shotgun. Um one one characteristic that uh, all weapons and you know shotguns arguably uh, are in Aurora. James Holmes killed twelve people. The first weapon he turned on the moviegoers was a Remington eight seventy shotgun. And uh, my theory is he probably killed eight people with the shotgun before he went to the center fire rifle because a shotgun up close is devastating. It, it is much more dangerous. Uh, at 50 yards, a shotgun with the right kind of ammo can take out a car. What this is, is, is simply this. With, with uh, the so-called assault weapons, the military lookalikes that have the same uh, semi-automatic capability as a true assault rifle does when it's in semi-automatic, if they ban those, first of all, it's not going to have any impact on crime because more people get killed with hands and feet every year than they do with any sort of long rifle. They know that, so they ban those, or they, they heavily restrict those, and that has no impact on crime, and crime continues on. So then they come back, and I think what you've got in California is you have this happening now. They come back when that first go-round, that first restrictive go-round doesn't work, and they come back and say, well, we didn't ban enough. And they keep on banning and banning until one day you've got a single-shot rifle that, uh, you know, and, and still, you know, that weapon is lethal. I, they, they, what? What Senator Leland Yee and a lot of the politicians in California want is a fairy tale land. It's a land that does not exist. There is no gun-free utopia. That genie is out of the bottle. The criminals are not going to pay attention to it. Well, and we know clearly from the battles over these kinds of issues in times past, the last time we had um, California Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, jump on this bandwagon with both feet and insisting that we needed to uh, permanently ban assault weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how terrible they were and that people should not be carrying guns. And then we find out, oops, she's got a concealed weapons permit. 
I don't have a problem with her as a senator carrying, but when there is sort of the elitist attitude that certain people get to have guns and others don't, you know, it comes down to one basic thing that uh, as we see this continued push, it's not addressing the real problem here. Number one. And to number two, you're going to wind up with two groups of people having weapons. Uh, the police force, which is heading more toward a militaristic style, um, you know, almost paramilitary troopers any more than police these days with the way they're being armed and the criminals. And meanwhile, the law-abiding citizens will simply get caught in the middle, no access to weapons whatsoever, which is kind of seemingly where things are headed if they get their way. Check out LockAndLoadRadio.com. That's LockAndLoadRadio.com, a part of Gun Owners of America. And there is Bill Frady on this edition of Lifeline.